Let's stay in the attitude of prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you that you have brought us into this moment, that you have made us aware from the beginning of our time together this morning that our worship is directed to you. You are the great I am. We praise you. We lift up our voices to you. We recognize, Father, that our gathering here today is, is to remind each other that our focus is you, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Father, I pray that you would help us to continue to be aware of the fact that you are the audience of our praise and our worship, that it is because of you that we are here. And we ask, uh, along with the, uh, the, the prayer in music that we have just heard, Lord, open our ears, open our eyes. We want to see you. We want to know you more carefully. We want you, Lord, to have all of us. We, we, we ask, Father, that you would be our vision, the focus of our vision. You would ultimately be our vision. Lord, that um, our lives would be consumed with your greatness and that we would take the lavish love that you have poured into our lives and that, Lord, it would be poured into the lives of others. So, God, would you meet with us and continue to meet with us now in a life-changing way. We, we long for this time together to be a, um, to build a greater sense and awareness of who you are, that you are real. Lord, we know that you are always present with us. You've promised never to leave us or forsake us. We pray, Father, as we gather together, there would be a heightened sense of your presence that would um, cause our hearts to be inclined to respond to your word, to say yes to you and to, to long to serve you. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been asked a question that you thought was a trap? I... Uh, Googled trap questions this week, and I found the top five out of Forbes magazine on the top five interview trap questions. And the survey says, number one, why is there a gap in your work history? Trap question number one. What would a person who likes you least in the world say about you? Can you imagine? Describe when you were part of a team that could not get along. If you could change one thing about your last job, what would it be? And the fifth is what annoys you about bosses? Be very careful how you answer that question. Dwayne, wherever he is. I love to use Dwayne as a foil. There he is. I don't know why. It's just it's something in me, Dwayne. You know, as I was looking at this Google thing, something caught my attention a little bit further down the list. You know how that is? That's why you shouldn't Google something because you're like, oh, I should look at this. And, and down below it had um, female questions. And it had, it had this statement. Every female question is a trap. <laughs> and I thought, how true? That's absolutely true. And then I was, I was drawn into it. I had to look at it because it, 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 had, it had advice for guys. And um, 
you know, female questions like, um, you know, do I look fat in this dress? It's like, and, uh, you know, those kind of questions. And so the strategy for the guys was this. Always answer a female question with a question. And the question is this. Why are you asking me this question? <laughs> and um, I thought, this is great advice. And, and uh, then it, it, it went on to say that that will buy you time. Uh, and, and when it buys you time, you can say to your wife, Darling, you look spectacular in every dress. I, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, got the same, I got the same reaction from the girls, in the, in the, from the ladies in the, in the last service. They were like... Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22? Jesus, this was... Um, likely the Tuesday of Holy Week. Uh, things were rapidly heating up in Christ's earthly ministry. It was coming to a conclusion of his time and there was a lot of conflict around him. And he and his disciples had gone to the, to the temple and now there was a group of individuals who were interviewing him with entrapment questions the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Everybody was taking a shot at Jesus. And it tells us in Matthew twenty-two fifteen 15 uh, what their intentions were. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They were playing head games, or so they thought, with Jesus Christ. Imagine thinking that, imagine humans thinking they could play head games with God. These are people who are uh, playing with, um, uh, obviously, uh, no power, no strength. And so as we read through this section, or as you encounter this section, you realize that they're trying to entrap him in the areas of paying his taxes, and the distinction between the government and the responsibilities of government and our responsibilities with God. And then he gets to a question with the Sadducees where they ask him this ridiculous question about a person married seven times and who would be their spouse in heaven. And he, uh, he makes the Sadducees look incredibly lame, particularly scripturally. You do not know the scriptures. And so the Pharisees step up and they are in need of a win. And so they bring their, uh, as it says in the original, their pneumakos, their I call them the Numicos Goliathos, their legal eagle, their best law lawyer, who steps forward and says, guys, don't worry, I got, it. I got it covered. I'll ask them a question that'll end it all. And so we pick up the text in verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with his, this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. And so um, begins our quest to investigate discipleship from a second part of our series this year. And I want to begin uh, to launch our next small series on discipleship uh, entitled Best Practices of Disciple-Making Churches. And we'll launch from this particular question, what is the greatest commandment? 
from Jesus' perspective, uh, I'm inviting you today to see the world through Jesus' eyes as, as he gives it to us here, to see it through his glasses. Um, if the question were asked to you, what is the most important thing about your business or about your work? Or, or what, what are the, the values that are most important in your life? Or what commandment shapes your life most? Or what would outsiders say is the commandment or the value that, that most defines you? Um, I want to look today at this question from that perspective because here's where this question really takes us. It takes us to uh, this question. Do you want to know how to be a God-centered person? Uh, do you want to know how to view the scriptures and your work in the world the way Jesus intended? Well, then I invite you today to bring your life into focus through Jesus' glasses through his perspective, through his lenses. Because the aim of discipleship is really twofold. The first is this, it's, it's image recovery or image restoration. Uh, Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 1.28 and said that we might present every person complete or perfect in Christ. What was he talking about? He, he's talking about the, the brand, the human brand that God always intended. From the beginning, we were created in the image of God. We were created to be like him. That's what makes the whole garden episode of temptation lame. Because when Satan came and, and tempted Eve and Adam and, and, and said, listen, go ahead and, and, and disobey God because, because then you'll be like him. Well, in fact, they already were like him. They had already been created in the image of God. In the likeness of God. What Satan was really suggesting is that you could be like God without God. He was inviting them to be independent of God. And so we, we have ever since in this quest to fulfill our own selfish desires and our own ego and, and our own desire to be like God without God we have moved further and further away from being like him, like Christ. And so discipleship, fundamentally, is about God bringing us back to what we were always supposed to be. Image bearers of the living Christ. That we might be more and more Christ-like. That's the end goal of discipleship. But the second is like it, and, and is, is this, that we, are, we, may, we were made to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. In the most mundane things of life, the most normal things of life, he, he, God wants us to be conscious of the idea that we are always to be honoring our great God and bringing glory to him. And, and so discipleship is really about these two things, that people might look at our life and say, I really don't know a whole lot about your God, but he must be spectacular based on how you live and what you think of him. To make God look good in our, through our lives. How could that happen? How can that happen? What's the key value, the key goals, the key practices in life? That will make that happen. Well, I, I suggest to you as we read the text here, Christ gives the answers. Jesus replied to this question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the prophets, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You can't begin a best practices in disciple making without starting here. And it is critical for us as we busy ourselves in the work of the Lord to make sure that we are focusing our lives and seeing our lives and the world around us through Jesus' glasses. How will these glasses look on you is the question we want to ask this morning. Because there are two important lenses with which we should look at the world, with which we should look at the scriptures, by which we should understand God, by which we should uh, relate to one another through these two lenses. And the first lens is, is one that is known to you well. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And by the way, this is not a new idea. It wasn't new to them at that time. It has always been... Uh, uh, expectation, the core values of those who claim to know and love the Lord, who, who are His people. It, it began, of course, in the teachings of, uh, uh, and when Moses recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Behold, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Love Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and body. The Shema. That was the teaching from the very beginning. There is only one God. He matters. Adore Him. That's always been the proclamation of those who've led God's people and taught God's people. It's always been the intention of God. There is one God. He matters. Adore Him. And so we want to look at this this morning and, and understand the nature of this. In fact, in the, in the record of this particular incident, as according to Mark, in Mark chapter 12, it states there that the Pharisee who actually asked him the question responded. Matthew doesn't pick it up, but, but Mark does. And here's the response of the Pharisee who asked the question in Mark chapter 12, verse 32. Well said, teacher. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but Him. To love Him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus responds to this Pharisee. And He says this to him. When Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I, I want you to notice here, before we uh, unpackage this statement by Christ, that, that agreeing, while agreeing is important, agreeing to this statement, it is not enough. I, I would suggest to you that, that millions of people in Canada agree that there is one God, that he matters, and that he should be adored. In fact, I would reckon to suggest that the 23 million, some odd of the 35 million Canadians, according to StatsCan, who claim to be Christians, would agree with this statement. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear, agreeing is not enough. 
loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul has a distinctive look to it, has a distinctive practice to it, has a distinctive value to it. That's what we want to look at this morning. We, we want to ask the question, why did Jesus say that loving God matters? There were a number of things that he could have said in terms of commandments. We know there are a number of commands, but why did he pick this out? That loving God matters. I, I suggest it has something to do with the fact that in God's word, his law and his love are never disconnected. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 15, which was only several days after saying this, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Why is it so important that you love me? Because if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the, and, and the obvious question that we must have is, well, why is it important to keep his commandments? The simple truth is, if we keep his commandments, it becomes the god fuel raw material for the Spirit of God to transform us and shape us into the image of Christ. And so loving matters, first of all, because the only way that the damaged image of God in our lives can be recovered is for us to obey his commandments. And the only way that we're going to obey his commandments is if we love him. In fact, um, that text in John chapter 14 uh, in terms of the grammar of that text is what we call a third-class condition and that if that says if you love me you will obey can actually be translated when you love me you will obey my commandments when you finally really love me you will obey my commandments. You remember how Jesus interacted with Peter at near the very end of, of his earthly ministry? He said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, of course I love you. You know I love you, Lord. And then Jesus said to him, well, then give me a big hug, Peter. Right? No, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. He said what? Feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, you will obey what I command you. Peter, when you really love me, you will obey what I've commanded you. Or it can be translated, since you love me, you will obey my commandments. Since you love me, Peter, obey my command. And so this issue of love has a practical reality to it. It's not that God is asking us for a great big hug. He doesn't need anything like that. He's asking us to obey him because we are sadly and grossly far away from Christ's likeness. And each time we obey the commands of God, God uses that through his spirit to change us, to transform us, so that we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And in so doing, he's restoring to us the brand he always had in mind for us. The image of God. That we might be bearers of his image. That everywhere we go and everything we say and everything we do will bring glory to God by how we live. That's why Christ talks here 
about loving God with all of your heart and all of your mind, which only comes by obeying. And every act of obedience, you say, look, I, I, don't lo- I don't think I love the Lord with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my soul. I'm telling you that as you take a command of God and as you choose to obey God, he shapes and reshapes your heart to in turn love him more. And as you love him more, you want to, in fact, abide by his commands more. And it's a, it's a circular reality, so much so that God pours his love into our lives. We obey his commands. He shapes us to be more and more like him. And we long for him more. And ultimately, our hearts and mind and, and, and body is being reshaped into Christ's likeness. But there's a second aspect to this. This getting well whole by obedience. Remember I said the second matter, it's not just image recovery, but it's glorifying God. What Christ is really asking us for here, and asking all of God's people for, is to treat God as a person, and not merely as a religious project. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. The only way that we can really glorify God and enjoy Him is by prioritizing the personhood of God and nurturing your relationship with Him. What do I mean by this? So regularly, particularly in our very busy um, kind of church, we are activists in the work of God. And we get very busy in the activities of Christ. We get very busy in the activities of religion. Christ is saying here that I want you to understand that God is not an idea. God is not simply a religious activity. God is a real person. A a person who longs to connect with you. Who, who longs to have a, a vital relationship with you. Remember what we talked about last week? That we are connected to the vine. Jesus is the vine. Um, when this was first introduced to God's people back in, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is really a text that we often use as parents in terms of how to raise our children and really help them to love the Lord and all of that. And so we jump right into the Deuteronomy chapter five, or Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 and 6, and say, when you're, when you're walking and when you're sitting down and when you're lying down, you need to be passionate about God and speak to, him, to your children and, and when you're on the pathway and all of that kind of stuff. But sometimes we forget, uh, we won't pay attention to the brackets and all of that. In the first three verses, God elaborates on the fact that those who are truly related to him will abide by his commands. And and the reason for that is he gives the basis, oh, hear, O Israel, your God is one God. Now love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and body. And, And yes, absolutely, when you're walking, when you're lying down, when you're sitting down, when you're talking, talk to your children about God in every way. Um, um, immerse your life in the things of God and who he is and all of that and, and he says he, he goes on to say write it on the doorpost write about God on your doorpost in your homes and, and write it on your forehead and so over time and by the way that was a polemic against the Egyptian 
uh, pagan worship whereby they wrote all kinds of pagan slogans all over their house and good luck charms and they had all things hanging all over their body and tattooed on their bodies and things and and so God is saying I want you to absolutely immerse yourselves beyond anything you see around you with me and so they did they put things on their doorposts they put little boxes on their foreheads and tied them with Bible verses in there. Before long, they were all excited about the idea of God. The little boxes on their forehead, the little slogans on their house, the religious activities, and forgot about God being a real person who they were to love and serve and honor and worship and by the time jesus arrives the pharisees and the sadducees are so who are supposed to be the living examples of all that is right about religion before god are all about religious activities and nitpicking here and trapping god there and all of this kind of stuff and wearing all of their little boxes on their heads and and going like this all the time and for, had forgotten that god was a real person who they needed to have a relationship with. And so it is with us. There's a grave danger that we might be preoccupied with our ministry activities and the symbols of our relationship with God, but not nurture a relationship with the real person of Jesus Christ. And that's why many people a long way down the journey who have served as teachers in Sunday school and charity workers and all kinds of things find out late in life all of a sudden when age or health or whatever and the activities go away, their relationship with God seems cold. That can happen in our marriages. It's the same thing. We are busy in our marriage with our children. There's activities. There's all kinds of things going on. And if we neglect the relationship with our spouse, someday when all of the activity goes away and all of the children move out, they eventually do. <laughs> Two more weeks. <laughs> we look at our spouse and we realize we don't even know each other because we never nurtured a relationship with each other. The activities were masquerading as a marriage. This is the critical issue for Christians and their walk with God. This is what Jesus meant by loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. It was nurturing that by obeying him and he'll, he'll change you into the image of Christ and then nurturing those things that are relational like our time with God in worship. Like our time, our holy contemplative times where we in, in conversation with God read his word and talk to him in prayer and contemplate the holy. These are the, the ways we nurture our relationship with God so that when all of the activity goes away, we have this rich relationship with God. Jesus said to them, um, by the way, this is a particular God I'm calling you to love. Love the Lord 
That was no um, off-the-cuff statement. That Lord word is the word Yahweh, the great I am, the one we sang to this morning, the great covenant-keeping God, the particular God, the creator God of the universe, that God. Love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and body. Love the Lord, the one who has a storyline in history, who's already proven to be a saving God, and he's your God. Not that you loved him, but that he loved you and gave himself for you. That God. Love him with all of your faculties, Jesus says. I want you to love him with your heart. That's the willing part of your life. I want you to love him with your soul. That's the feeling part of your life. And I want you to love him with your mind. That's the thinking part of our lives. This is not just some emotional goo. And it's not just some intellectual rightness. It is truth lived out in relationship with a glorious person of the universe. That's what this is. I'm sure the Pharisee was wondering, why did I even ask him this question? You see the trap was that the Pharisee asked him to choose one command. You know what they were trying to hope, you know the trap they were trying to hope for? Because the Bible, the Word of God is filled with all kinds of commands. They were hoping that they could catch him choosing a command and then say, we knew it. We knew he was a liberal. We knew that he wasn't abiding by God's Word. And so the Lord God gives this amazing answer. Jesus refuses to be drawn into the trap. And what he says to them is that everything in God's word and everything in God's will will serve these great purposes, to love God and to love people. Jesus says, I'll hold up the scriptures before you and say this is what this book is about. I'll point heavenward and say this is what my father is about that everything that he has stated everything that he has presented everything that he's about is you loving him with all of your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself and they will not be disconnected they're a package deal jesus will not permit an either or theology versus praxis you may not discount the spiritual from the social that's how all kinds of aberrant things happen when people dissect these things. When people suggest that they, they take one or the other. Well, I love God with all of my heart. All kinds of different zealots have stated that and then gone out and done horrible things to people. Or others have said, well, I'll take care of people. I'll, I'll absolutely give my life to people and then have had no time or attention for God. Humanists, socialists, Jesus will have none of it. Jesus draws these two together and says that the practice of only one is not considered the practice of the other. You must practice both these things. And the second lens is to love your neighbors yourself. Again, not new. That's pulled out of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But while we know one thing, that loving God has more specifically detailed instructions because Jesus says, here's how you love me. Obey my commands. But we are invited to take the love that God has lavished upon us 
and take it for a ride into a world and freelance kindness to people. That's what this means. Basically, Christ is saying there are people near you in your life. People matter to God. Cherish them. That's the connected counter to what he's already said about God. Now, he says that the second here in the text, he says the second of these commands is like it. What does he mean by that? I think the like it component is this. The power to either love God or love your neighbor comes from God, not from you. It is God who first loved us, not that we loved him. And so the the connection between these two is that Jesus is saying you can't love God with all of your heart unless the love of God is poured into your life. And you can't love your neighbor as yourself unless the love of God is poured into your life. It comes from the power of God's life, the, the, of love. The power to love God comes from the power of God's love. Now, he also states here that we're to love our neighbor. He narrows down the range of responsibility. Now, that's not to discount our, our, our opportunities or responsibilities globally. But understand this. Our first responsibility, according to the Lord, in the world, for Christians, is to take care of your neighbor. You remember that, um, that uh, he was asked, Jesus was asked, well, who, who is my neighbor? And you'll remember he told the story of the Good Samaritan. And the punchline, of course, of the Good Samaritan is the neighbor definition is this. Whoever is near enough to you for you to help is currently your neighbor. So help them. And that's how you take your role in the world. That's how God intends for the world to be taken care of. Every Christian taking care of the person near to them is your global responsibility. That's how the world is reached. We have all kinds of people who, who uh, are, are, are willing to charitably uh, send off money to far uttermost parts of the world, but have no conscious sense of the responsibility they have to the people that God brings right into their lives, right next door, right on the bus, right in the classroom, right in the office place. Those are your neighbors. This is fulfilling the greatest commandment. To reach out to your neighbor. Those close by who you can love. Like Christ loves. Now, it says here, as yourself. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. Which means we're not asked to impoverish or run ourselves into oblivion. And we're not really asked to do more than self. Or more than we do for our own selves. It's as yourself there's that commercial on tv that i don't know if you've noticed it uh it will will um will treat you like you'd treat you well this goes further this is i'll treat you like i'd treat me how, how do we define this how do we understand as myself i'll treat my neighbor as i treat me that's what's called for here now, I want to, um, with, with the moment that's left to us, I want to make sure that we understand that, that um, uh, this isn't going to a third level as some have chosen to go. It's simply love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. It doesn't take us to this godless teaching by some 
who insists, well, the only way that I can possibly love God this way or the only way that I can possibly love my neighbor this way is if, in fact, I love myself. Because unless I love myself, I can't possibly love my neighbor as myself and I can't possibly love God. That is teaching from Satan. That's not teaching from God. We are not ever taught that the story is the story of me. That somehow that, that I must love myself as a prior requirement to be able to do this. We don't get this power or ability from ourselves. We get this power to love from God. It has nothing to do with where we are at with ourselves. Self-love is a, is a horrible teaching that is actually counter to Christianity. It's what got Adam and Eve in the trouble in the first place is their self-love. If they had have loved God more than themselves... They would have, in fact, abided by his command instead of, in fact, abandoning him and leading a life of independence from God or choosing to do so. It troubles us or should trouble us that God is regularly being used by particularly Christian authors as a stepping stone to get the real interest in the universe, which is me. And it becomes all about me and myself and improving myself strategically and tactically. Jesus improves us into the image of, his, of Christ as we obey his commands. It's very sad to me that a pastor would author a book entitled Making Every Day Friday. Now, I don't know how that hits you, but maybe it doesn't hit you to say, I know, I know we know all this, thank God, it's Friday stuff and all that, but if a pastor's writing a book, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be good if every day was Sunday? I mean, maybe at least take it there. But this book uh, that is authored by a pastor and best-selling in, in all our bookstores is really about how me can be happy, the happy center of all seven days of the week. This is the opposite of what Jesus is teaching here. The absolute opposite. He is teaching that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart. And love our neighbor as ourself. That is a completely distinctive, distinctively different look. Loving God, as we are taught here in this text, is rationally laid out in the scriptures. But loving our neighbors is open to the farthest reaches of your imagination. Learn the language of God. Learn the lang love language of God with your whole heart. That's what's being called for here. He wants you. He wants all of you. And from that devotion whereby he has lavished his love into your life, it will overflow in imaginative ways that you might see how you can better the lives of the people around you. Every day for us, beloved, is judgment day. Every day. Every day we have decisions to make. Will I choose to obey the commands of God today or will I skip them? Will I choose to nurture my relationship with God today and spend time with him or will I skip it? Will I choose today to do a loving thing for, for my neighbor or will I do the me thing? Every day is a decision day. Every day we make multiple decisions for or against Christ. Every day, more or less of our heart loves God. And, and Christ puts it here as a command. It is, it is put before us 
to make these choices every day. Do I love the Lord my God? Do I want to love him with all of my heart? Then obey the commands of Christ. Nurture my relationship with God. He's a person. He loves you. And then love your neighbor as yourself. I'll do for you what I do for me. Disciple-making churches then adore the God who loves them as a priority and cherish the people they meet. Father, I ask you this morning to take this well-known text that's become perhaps so familiar that we have tucked it away and believe that we have it all taken care of. Maybe we don't. Maybe there's something missing in our life in the loving God department or loving our neighbors. So, Father, I pray that in a fresh way today as the Holy Spirit evaluates our lives, I pray, Father, that we might not quickly leave this text but might allow the Spirit of God to ruminate on it in our presence. Because, Father, you have set this out as a priority of a disciple-making church, of a church, of Christian. This is who we are. This is the glasses we wear. I pray, Father, that we will fully apply the Jesus glasses to our lives. For Christ's sake, I pray. Amen. There is always a great danger in an activist church like ours whereby we are busily engaged in the things of God that we might be preoccupied with the things that God gives to us, our gifts, and occupy ourselves with that and take away from our time with the Lord and others. So allow the Holy Spirit in this greatest commandment to search your heart, to determine where in it you may be needing an adjustment on one of your lenses. Am I loving the Lord with all of my heart? Am I obeying his commandments? Or am I choosing to skip them or skip some of them? Am I carving out time for my relationship with God or am I skipping that, shortchanging myself there? And then, of course, am I, in fact, engaged in bettering the lives of the neighbors around me? These are the matters of the heart of Christ. These are the glasses he wears. These are the way he looks at the world and our lives. And we should look through his eyes as well. Father, I pray and thank you today that you have taken us into this very important place. And now I ask that the Spirit of God would um, evaluate us and, and cause us to invite you to reform and reshape areas of neglect in our lives in these matters, that we might love God with all of our heart and love our neighbors ourselves. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.